All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, it's another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove. We have the almighty Team Supreme with us, Ron Tickle. Brother, how's it been going? I'm good, man. Uh, I'm doing yoga. <laughs> nice! <laughs> hey, the Flow Tickle, bro. I'm out here. We down with dog and pigeon posing on all these hoes, nigga. Let's Word go. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nice. All right, cool, cool. We... we Particular going to get his toll booth pass to go past 80, maybe to 90 or 100. Right. Yes. Right, I'm right, taking right. you to Bikram's. I'm taking hot yoga. I yeah, know. Yeah, I run. Yeah, we do hot yoga. I'm about that. I run with you. Yeah. We'll get it. Damn, that's what's up, y'all. Steve, you next as, as Steve likes a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm doing yoga, too. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't started yet, but... Um, <laughs> Everything's cool. Um, working on a lot of stuff. You're you're doing. I don't know in in your mind if it's like mocking or not mocking, like with the network and all that. But I, I gotta say, in the last three weeks, like you're doing like major, major, major shit. Like you're not just like doing like rinky dink jazz records. Like I almost feel like you're out here trying to save jazz music. Like. <laughs> Well, what's been, been going on, man? We got a lot of records coming out. It's uh, JMI is the name of the label. We're coming up on 20 records. It's been like five years that we've been around and uh, finally got you on the label recently. And we're, we're, we're mixing that record uh, with David Murray and Ray Angry. And yep. yeah, I'm not. Well, there's a lot of great jazz labels out there, obviously still doing it, but we're doing it all analog with tape and never touching digital in any way. So we I can't find another label that's doing it like that where it's completely purist and old school like that. So yeah, we're proud of it. And you know what else is turning five years old? The Sugar Network. In, <laughs> this, Wait, this, the Sugar Network is five years old? That's correct. This month. Word up. You, you started in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Started shortly after Quest of Supreme. It's a movement, man. You, you the Sugar Network is the army, better yet, the Navy. 
Well, it's Quantum. it's it's like a little fan club for the for this podcast. Basically, that's how it's that's how it started. But it, it's expanding. You know, it absolutely here. is. All right. Wait. So just let me know, JMI. Are you, is your logo at least close to the CTI label? Like, <laughs> uh, there are some similarities. Um, to we we stole some of some of their design aspects for our stuff, but not not the logo specifically. All right. But uh, yeah, keep it true. Check. Keep it old school. Uh, Laia, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. I'm. I got the flu, but I I don't want to miss speech. So, <laughs> oh, you, you got the flu. Yeah, you know, talking to a bunch of niggas doing Grammy weekend will get you sick. Mm. Trying to book people, but and the good news, oh, Quest Love Supreme, honey, I was on the strip with my my leg and my skirt up. Like, come on, Nas, come on, <laughs> Leslie Jones. Like, yep. So I was Wait, working. Nas's might just visit. The he said he Quest- would. He said to me he would. He said to me, "Yeah, I want to." Yeah. Oh snap! Okay, yeah. that's what's yeah. up. That's what's up. Well, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, I will say that you know, uh, this interview is close to my heart because, as a founder, leader of of one of the most legendary groups in hip hop, a group really, really responsible for laying out the carpet for a group like the Roots to come down and be able to have a career. I will say that, you know, this gentleman has pretty much made a profound impact on the music industry just with the level of, I guess, the first wave of black joy. Like, we weren't using terms like black joy back in 1992, (laughs) You know, we just basically called it alternative rap, but it's almost like I, I never liked the term alternative rap because Lauryn Hill once told me that alternative rap just means, like, no skills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's definitely not the case. You know, besides being uh, one of two people uh, in the hip-hop field that have won Best New Artist for the Grammys, as far as hip-hop winning uh, Best New Artist, I will say that his group's debut album really just set a high-water mark for just music, period, just a, a feeling definitely a blueprint that i followed and it's this conversation is seriously long overdue ladies and gentlemen please welcome to quest love supreme i don't know if we ever had a one title person before i'm used to saying like the full name i don't want to say welcome todd thomas oh professionally known oh, as speech. Name out there, oh i didn't <laughs> even know <laughs> You know, I'm trying to make it like like you're a dignitary or or or, or a head of state, not just like I'm not trying to be the popo on you. <laughs> Please welcome uh, speech to Questlove Supreme. Thank you, man. Yo, there. yo, that 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 all of these words very much mean the world to me. I appreciate it, man. It's good to be here. It's been a minute, man. It's been a minute. It's been a good minute. It's been a yeah. good minute. Yeah, facts. Where are you talking to us right now? From where? Where are you at? This is my studio. I call it the podium and I'm at my crib. So on my property, I have a separate building and it's my studio. So I'm in here in and it's the Atlanta, state of Georgia. Georgia. Okay. Yeah. You're state still in of Georgia, Georgia, Fayetteville area. Yep. That's what's up, so huh? you've stayed in Georgia that, that entire time of your yeah, career? Since, yeah. Since 1987. Yo, didn't we meet in Milwaukee? I know that you have roots in Milwaukee, but I'm trying yeah. to figure out if I met you in Milwaukee once. Um, you guys were rocking a show at Summerfest, which is one of the largest music festivals in the world, actually. Yeah, yeah. And yep. Uh, I I sell roasted corn at Summerfest. My father 
opened up a hot roasted corn stand business at Summerfest 46 years ago. And so wow. my wife and I have been doing that business. Well, I was working at it since I was nine years old. Right. But my my wife and I started working that business, taking it over for my dad for probably, I'm going to say 16 years or so. And so one year, the Roots was um, rocking, I want to say on the Miller stage or one of the stages Yeah, it's at Summerfest. And I came backstage and hung out with y'all um, while you were there. All right. So I'm totally just going to throw away my initial questions because now you piqued my curiosity because <laughs> I, I, too, am in the food world. But I, I got to know, like, how do you maintain that business? My dad, he was trying to get his foot in the door because we're the one and only black owned um food company in Summerfest. The Summerfest is huge. I can't say that enough. I know. And so, um, and so basically he wanted to get his foot in the door. They were offering soul food as an option, so on and so forth. But he was just studying the landscape and realized that roasted corn would kill for the audience that tended to go to Summerfest at that time. And so he was going in as a roasted corn business and it started off literally bananas like so many people were into it like you were describing the dude that was outside of sobs mm -hmm. it was lines around the block for this corn and not to mention a black man selling it all black workers creating this corn roasting this corn which is a big production like unlike the dude that was on the streets ours was a very big production so we had tons of basically six seven hundred degree roasters that were lined up and we would put the corn on these big metal sheets and then turn the corn over when, once one side was done. And it was a production to watch as well. And people just loved it. And um, so as a nine years old, from that point on, I started doing it, just working there. And then, you know, when I got old enough and my father was too old to run it, my, my queen and I took it over. And so- Was he a chef by nature or- No, not at all. In fact, he learned how to roast it the best that he could and it was just dope. Everybody loved it. And it was way above any competitors at other, you know, state fairs. Cause Milwaukee also has a state fair, which is really big. It mm. was way bigger than the people that sold it there. So everybody just started falling in love with Robbie's roasted corn. And that was my, my dad, whose name is Robert. Yeah. So he started that whole tradition on a stick. You know how to, yeah. No, not on a stick. No, oh. you, you roast it in a roast on a roaster and then you pull back the husk. And you let that husk, you hold the husk. So you keep the husk. You know, a lot of people take the husk yeah. off. Mexican style. Little, okay. Exactly. And you you hold that husk and then you wrap a to uh, paper towel around it. You dip it. We dip it in butter, like literally a crock pot full of butter. We dip it in there. And then we have various seasonings, you know what I mean? From Ooh. anything from lemon pepper to Mexican style, which is like a mayonnaise and so on and so forth rubbed on it. It's better than fried chicken. Yeah. It really is actually. It's incredible. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's just a local phenomenon. You guys never expanded outside of Milwaukee or not in a huge way. Not yet. Like we strive to get into Disney World and stuff like that and just were unsuccessful yeah. doing that. But the truth is, is that we've done like Atlanta, which is where I live. We've done Chicago. So this is regional to where we're sort of based out of, but mm -hmm. we haven't taken it national or anything like that. Mm, Roots Picnic 2024. That's what I'm saying. But even at that... Consider it done. I would do that, for real. Shit. All right. Yep. We... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Are you growing your own corn? Do you have a farm? No. 
Um, I know this is a music podcast, but I'm just right. really interested. No, I, in- I, I get it. I get it. We source our corn from different growers. So obviously corn is very seasonal. So we try to make sure we get the best corn. We try to get a mixture of white and yellow corn. And so it's it's really, really delicious. And it's just, I mean, it's more flavorful than your, your normal uh, yellow corn. And so we get it sourced from different producers and, 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 you know, farmers and stuff like that. Uh Oh, his mind is. Yeah. I'm, I'm cause I, <laughs> I mean, I just purchased a farm. I don't have plans on utilizing it as a farm, farm, farm. Yes. There's a greenhouse to grow like vegetables and whatnot, but that's just like right. my personal consumption. Right. But, Again, because I'm getting into the alternative food space and all those things, and you know, um, not to mention there's a, a brother from Milwaukee actually. Um <laughs> Will Allen basically uh, pioneered inner city uh urban farming and kind of really like was the pioneer of that. He got a MacArthur Genius Grant for doing it. And I became friends with Dumb. his daughter, and you know, I thought it was silly. They're like, yo, man. No, we need to teach our people how to, how to farm, how to, Facts. because, you know, and I'm, I'm a result of it. Like growing up in Philadelphia, I didn't realize that, you know, we had to go outside to the suburbs. We had to go to Upper Darby to find fresh fruits fresh and fresh organic vegetables. food. Yeah. Right. You don't have that in the inner city. And so Facts. that's what made me interested in plant-based foods and developing that. And not like, you know, I think people tend to think like we want to replace it or whatever. Yes, right. granted. Yes, I know Patrick from Impossible Foods wants to replace, you know, meat, which right. yeah. hey, more power to I truly I believe in 20 years it what we know as food now will be phased out and will be like plant-based. But yeah, I'm just really interested when people get into the alternative space for those things. Yeah, so. totally, totally. Shout out to Milwaukee. That's dope. Okay. So yes. Will Allen, dope. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now I'll get to back to my real question. What was your very first musical memory? I would I would say it was seeing the Jackson Five show on Saturday mornings. That was probably my first musical memory, and watching Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five, that cartoon slash. I think they might have had like real scenes as well. So I think it was a mixture. Well, it was a, yeah, it was a cartoon. And then they had a variety show too. So yeah, right the 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 variety show of seventy seven. I just found out yep. that um, when the Silvers moved from Tennessee to Los Angeles, you know they they the Silvers uh you know they had notoriety as a, a singing group. They've been singing together since they were kids, but when they got to Hollywood, one of the first jobs that two of the brothers had, one of the brothers in the Silvers was the voice of Jackie. And I believe, uh, I believe Jermaine, yeah, Jackie and Jermaine were voiced by members of the Silvers. Yeah. That's deep. I did yeah. not know that. That is something that, ah, uh, we never mentioned that on the Leon Silvers episode. Yeah, I think it was, I wow. think it was Edmund, Edmund and Ricky Silvers, I believe. I believe it was them. Yeah. So. Wow. Could you tell me the very first album that you purchased? With your own I'm, money, not given to you, but yeah, yeah. Well, I don't remember the joint with my own money, but I remember my grandmother gifting me a forty-five of Michael Jackson. Well, uh, was it the Jackson Five? It was. 
Um, damn, what was that song? Um, shake your body down to the ground. Shake your body down to the ground. That was probably, yeah, that was my first like memory of having a record that was my own. You know what I'm saying? So I, I didn't buy it, but I owned it. It was my record. Like that was the beginning of my record collection, and it was just a 45. Yeah. What did, What did your parents do for a living? My mom. Both of them are activists. My mom and my mom is the owner of the largest black newspaper in Wisconsin. It's called the Milwaukee Community Journal. So that's my mom. My dad is an entrepreneur in many ways. So he started gas stations. He started um, catering businesses. The first black owned uh, fast food restaurant in Milwaukee. He started a a, a nightclub called the Fox Trap, which turned into an arcade. And so, you know, he was a, a just a serial entrepreneur. He never owned all those things at one time, but he would do this business for a while. Then he would transfer to this business and that business. So that's what my mom and dad both did. Yeah. Well, I, I want to know how easy is it or how easy was it for uh, black entrepreneurs to start a business? Because, you know, for most of us, you start a business, first of all, by getting a bank loan. Exactly. And and usually for a lot of people that I hear talking about, you know, post-civil rights experience for black people, you know, a lot of the Jim Crowing attitudes pre-1968 were still happening, you know, long after, like way into the 70s, way into the 80s. Yeah, um, even one of one of the funniest stories I ever heard was um, George Johnson, who, you know, started the Johnson Hare Empire in yeah. Chicago. Um, yeah. You know, they single-handedly funded Soul Train, you know, with the, with the after scene commercials and all that stuff. So he tells a story of going uh, to at least 20 banks in Chicago and getting rejected by them all uh, when he wants to start a business. And I believe he says that his uncle told him, I'm going to show you how to buck the system. I want you to return to blah, 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 bank. And instead of saying that you want to borrow $2,000 to start a business, say you want to borrow $2,000 to take your wife on vacation. Wow. And they did it. Wow. Wow. Again, like that, you know, like we don't talk about probably what the the main gripe of the systematic racism in the United States is the 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 rampant denial of bank loans to start businesses. Exactly. Yeah. And so how is your dad able to start all these businesses? Because, you know, I, I've. Yeah. This is a rare situation for me to hear someone that has like a dream and it goes into fruition and manifest itself yeah i'm glad you asked that they pulled money together from other black families and people and so that was their startup money and then my mother she was a school teacher and so after the riots of dr martin luther king jr being murdered there was riots in milwaukee in milwaukee oh of course across the nation but in milwaukee as well and they were they looted and destroyed a lot of the black businesses. Well, while those black businesses were striving to get back on their feet and got back on their feet, they needed somebody to advertise the fact that they were open again and ready for business. And the major newspapers in Wisconsin were refusing to cover these stories. So they asked my mother, 
to put together a pamphlet. Initially, she did it. It's called the Soul City Shopper. And her, she was just doing it for free. Her, her goal was to try to get people in the community to realize that these stores were back open. That started to happen. Other black people that had a little bit of money scraped it together and helped them to start what's now called the Milwaukee Community Journal. My dad used that money to start his first business, which was a small gas station. And then when that did pretty well, he used that money. So you get where I'm going with this to start his next business. And he was the most, uh, in 1980, he was one of the most successful black business people, well, business people, not black people, um, business people in Milwaukee. But when he got to that level, the city literally systemically destroyed him tax wise. And they came after him. They targeted him. He had a huge target on his back and they destroyed most of his businesses. My mom, on the other hand, was able to keep hers and move forward. But his, he didn't have businesses, I would say, past I'm going to say like 1987, my dad didn't have any other businesses that he was able to do in Milwaukee. That's how bad they put him into bankruptcy, tax um, issues that he had to fight, all the money with lawyers. They spent tons of money trying to fight all of these things and just, you know, fell underwater. It actually destroyed my mom and dad's marriage at that time. So, I mean, all of these things obviously have effects. You know what I mean? Wow. I would think owning a newspaper would be seen more as a threat than starting an independent business on your mom's side of things like how was she able to run that community the segregated mind state we weren't literally segregated but the segregation mind state really played a big role in her being able to sustain because the major newspapers refused to give coverage to a lot of the black stories black death black achievements black joy as you said earlier her paper was that sole resource for quite a while. And then later, and that's the same, by the way, with my father's um, drive through restaurant he had called Robbie's. And McDonald's. Name all of his businesses again. <laughs> I know. And so at that time period, McDonald's was afraid to have drive throughs in the black community. They didn't want to do it. They had some locations, but they refused to open a drive through. Well, my father used that their refusal as an opening to start a business that did have a drive-through. Of course, just like any other people, black people needed convenience on their way to work. They wanted to grab something to eat, go to work, so on and so forth. And his business took off. So it was basically their own ignorance and their own refusal to serve black people that allowed my mom and dad both to have a career. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. 
Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Is your entire family based in Milwaukee or just like your mom and dad? Like, No. So my, my father's family is from Tennessee. And then my mother's family is from East St. Louis. So they my both cousin? came to Milwaukee for exactly. Are oh, you from East St. Louis? My mama's from St. Louis. There you I go. is from yeah, everywhere. So- I learned something new every episode. I did not know you had St. Louis roots. Oh, yeah. Yeah. East yeah. Kirkwood, all yeah. that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, sorry. No, it's all good. So then they came to Milwaukee and uh, met each other during college years. And, you know, so there was some family there. But, um, you know, back in these days, there was this huge um, diversion from the from the south to the Midwest to the west because of lack of job opportunities. And so factories were opening in the Midwest. And that's why, you know, Milwaukee was one of the places that was on our radar back then as black people. Yeah, that's ill. All right. I got this is a two parter. One, what year did you leave Milwaukee? 1987, uh, the year I graduated high school. So um, I left literally a week after I graduated. I came to Atlanta. All right. Now, part two of that question is and this is weird that you leave Milwaukee for Atlanta, in which the unfortunate commonality thread of the two cities is that both cities are well known for uh, two horrific crimes. Okay, go ahead. No, two horrific crimes uh, against groups of black people. Um, Of course, the Atlanta child murderers and Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Ah, I keep forgetting that's Milwaukee. Right. Milwaukee. And I, you know, I didn't know until the Netflix series that he started back in 1978. Like, I thought this was happening like around like 90, 89, 90, 91. But I didn't realize that yeah. his process was way slower. But did I, I never had a chance to interview anyone from Milwaukee that, you know, or know many black people from Milwaukee. So I'm asking you to represent your entire uh, city here. <laughs> <laughs> but did you 
like, did you have any family that w- was affected by what was happening uh, with with Dahmer at the time, or like, was that even in the news? Like, were they reporting like yeah. missing black people, or or is this just like oh, another murder this week? Or- no, no, it was definitely a huge story in Milwaukee. And my dad lived in the same complex, not in the same like area that Dahmer lived as Dahmer. So when my mother and father divorced, his apartment was there. And so it was a very big issue. When we found out about it, when it became big news and nationwide news, as a family, we were affected in the sense of knowing dad was there. You know, my my father was there. So, wow. yeah, it was a very, very big deal. It wasn't just one of those sort of like things like, oh, something's happening over there. No, it was definitely. And by the way, Milwaukee is very black. So like um, Milwaukee, that the I did city. Not know. Yeah, we just think Laverne and Shirley and happy days. Exactly. Exactly. No, the city itself, I believe I want to say is 60 or so percent black. So if you go to Milwaukee, the city itself, because, you know, like like Georgia, I know people come down to Georgia. Georgia is one thing, but Atlanta is another thing. Right. And so it's the same difference with Milwaukee. And, and it's it's a very black, black, black city. Yeah. So Milwaukee, I'm going to talk about Atlanta. Milwaukee was a very um, like the difference, the disparities between black and white people is is and was so crystal clear in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Most Milwaukee black populations were either poor or lower middle class somewhere in there. And white people, on the other hand, had a, you know, a much better shot at being able to rise up the ladder in America, in, in a sense. And so when I left um, Milwaukee in 1987, right out of high school, I came to Atlanta and for the first time in my life, I saw black affluence and people being able, just black opportunity, black diversity, conscious blacks over here with daishikis and locks and stuff like that and corporate blacks over there. I mean, that type of- Wait, wait, just, so that was in Atlanta? That was in Atlanta, 1987. I'll be very honest with you, I had a few friends and family members in Atlanta at the time and really before the Renaissance, which I kind of, I mean, between you and like Bobby Brown, really Bobby Brown was the first person I heard like, wait, the success you have with this album, you're moving to Atlanta, Georgia, instead of like Baldwin Hills and all that stuff. I just always wanted to know, like, like I thought y'all created what we know as the boho lifestyle. Cause I just thought like they're the pioneers of that, but you're saying that you saw oh, that definitely. alternative boho scene in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. So the West end of Atlanta, right. It's an area where there's a lot. Well, especially before it got regentrified more recently, it was a very uh, cultural landmark in Atlanta where you had, you know, African priests and, African dance companies and teaching about the importance of drumming and the importance of language through music and mathematics through music, like these types of things were being taught and spoken of in the West End in particular, which is where Arrested Development was really born in Atlanta. Like my, my, me and my brother headliner, who, you know, was the first person I asked to be in the group, he used to cut hair. I call him headliner because he was incredible. Yeah at barbering like the man Mm -hmm. and then of course you had all of these hbcus there right so you have spelman morehouse clark atlanta university so on and so forth morris brown so 
all of that area was bubbling with culture and with revolutionary, you know, ideas and and visions. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I think people who would later see Arrested Development, we they would know, like if they were in that area, they would know that we we came from that sort of frame of mind. But I, I will say we added the more rural aspects. So like what you're talking about as far as the need, you know, when you um, said my man Will Allen was was a pioneer in the sense of us getting back to the land and understanding the importance of land growth. That's the tip Arrested Development in particular was on, just trying to take us back to that route. So our videos were unpurposely that kind of energy. If you remember the Tennessee right. video and people every day, it was always in that rural South, just to be able to bring us back to that, you know, that eco self-determination, you know, saying grow our own food, do our own thing type of energy. To hear you describe it, I would assume that your parents weren't, were they musically inclined at all? Or did you have siblings? So, yeah, I did. Um, I, I had well, a brother. Your brother. Your brother. Yeah, my brother, Terry. And then my mom was big on adoption and on um, fostering. Mm -hmm. So throughout my childhood, my mom would foster numerous kids. And then one of them that she actually adopted was from Accra, Ghana. His name was Bright Boateng. So he lived with me as a child. And yeah, so I did have siblings. No, my parents weren't particularly into music, but I will say my dad being an entrepreneur, when he started his club, it was called the Foxtrap, one of the hottest clubs in Milwaukee at the time. I started falling in love with DJing at that time. I was 13 and I became a DJ at that club because of just falling in love with music. So I wouldn't say he taught me from like being musically inclined, but mm -hmm. Getting all those promo records back in the day, because as as a nightclub, he would get promo records from all the major labels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember you posting recently about Yellow Magic Orchestra, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember I remember getting, you know, vinyl from those days. They used to poke a hole in the bottom of it to say that it was promotional. Yeah, it was promotion. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I would get vinyl and my dad, not knowing about music, would ask me to basically curate what his DJs would play that night. So I was like always digging into the crates, you know, as they say. So, yeah, um, I think that's where I was sort of taught music in a, in a, in a sense was through that, as opposed to them teaching me, you know, them having musically inclined skills. You know what I mean? Why'd you leave Milwaukee in the first place? The opportunity was very rare in Milwaukee. Like no one had made it out of Milwaukee except for Al Jarreau before <laughs> us. He's, from, he's Milwaukee? from Milwaukee. Yeah, he's from Milwaukee. And he had Cuckoo and so, Cow. And Cuckoo <laughs> Cow was much later. Yeah, Cuckoo Cow was much right later. <laughs> yeah. Wait, who? Cuckoo, Cuckoo Cow. Cow. Yeah, so that's... He has yeah. a documentary on Amazon. You should check it out. But yeah. 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 Okay. So, you know, so like at that time, nobody was making it from Milwaukee. Um, Eric Benet is from Milwaukee. That was later. You know what I'm saying? So there was a lot of things that was later. But... At that time, there was nobody making it. There was no opportunities. I used to tour Detroit to try to spend time with Juan Atkins. I'm sure you're familiar with Juan Atkins. Hell yeah. Yeah. So like Juan electronic Atkins was music my god. electronic music god. So like. Wait, he was nice to you? He was very nice to me. In fact, he liked my group at the time, which was before Arrested Development called Attack. And so that was like the closest opportunities we had was like Detroit. You know what I mean? And right. 
And obviously in hip hop, even Detroit wasn't on yet. You know what I mean? Chicago wasn't on yet. So yeah. Atlanta wasn't either though, really. No, it wasn't. But but Atlanta had much more opportunity than Milwaukee. So that's why I chose Atlanta. Plus, I I wanted to be in the South. Like I spent all my summers with my grandmother in Tennessee. And I fell in love with the South. I fell in love with the whole idea of the South, especially the nature aspect, not obviously, you know, oppression and slavery, you know, not right. that, but like the realities of land ownership and self-determination of growing your own food, exchanging food from one household to another. So if you didn't have money, which my grandmother didn't, she still had everything because the next door neighbor had collards and the other neighbor had, you know, sugar and the other neighbor had yams and, and meat. And so it was this, this self-determined community or communal of uh, the South that I fell in love with, you know? I feel like that's progressive thinking because I would just think in the late eighties, like everyone I knew was still trying to migrate to the North, especially yep. where, where, where hip hop was going. I mean, yeah. Jermaine Dupree himself, yep. like moved to New York city and, yep. you know, it wasn't until like, you know, the kind of regentrification and, and outsource, well, not even outsourcing, but just, the the overpricing of of city living is now made a reverse where now people are yeah people are coming considering down considering back down south now so yeah um all right so now that you're in Atlanta um what are well what was your first musical experience in terms of starting a band or or starting a group and yeah, so I I came to Atlanta to go to school because I sucked at school in Milwaukee. I, I graduated with a 0.9 average, which is a big time F. <laughs> so <laughs> Right, right. Exactly. That's under an F, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, that's a G. And so, so I came to Atlanta because the Art Institute of Atlanta was the only school that I had applied to that would allow me to come. And I even had to write a letter of acceptance there to tell them that I was going to change my tune, so on and so forth. So the first week I got there, I put up a flyer because I wanted to start a crew and I was a DJ, but I was rapping more and more and more. And so I put up a flyer for a DJ and I hung it up at the lunch counter area, you know, where people were, you know, hanging out. And this brother named Tim Barnwell, later headliner, was looking at the flyer. And so I said, yo, you know, my name is Speech, blah, blah, blah. And we just connected from there. And then we just started doing music, vibing. I started working for a brother named Butch Winston at Kiss 104 as the DJ. Because back then, you know, DJs, not every DJ knew how to scratch. You know what I mean? So a lot of DJs were still mixing old school where it was the record faded out and the next record faded in, but it wasn't mm -hmm. on beat and all that. You know, this is early years of hip hop. So, right. um, you know, I was a DJ that actually knew how to scratch. I was studying DST and, you know, all of these types of cats, you know, Jazzy Jeff, you know what I mean? And so on and so forth. You said uh, you introduced yourself to to Temp Headliner as Speech. Yeah. How did you, what, can you tell us the origins of you choosing that name? Yeah, so I, in Milwaukee when I DJ, I was named DJ Peach, P-E-E-C-H. And okay. it's because of my, the size of my um, head and the light skin complexion and, you know what I'm saying, like that kind of vibe, my oh, okay. forehead being, being extra nice. And, um, <laughs> and so, LL Cool J was taken already. Exactly. And LL Cool J was taken already. Yeah. By the way, we're both Scorpios, me and LL. But okay. both of us are named Todd. Both of us are named Todd. Well, okay. James Todd. So, yeah. So I, I put an S in front of Peach 
when I started rhyming. And to me, I wanted to rebrand myself. I knew I was going to the Peach State and I didn't want to be known as MC Peach. I thought that was whack. And so I was like, okay, let me put an S in front of it. Now it makes sense. I'm rhyming now. I'm doing the, you know, I'm letting the DJ sort of go to the background and uh, my DJ and I should say, go to the background of, of my movement and let, let me take speech. So I just put an S in front of Peach. Uh, Hip hop wise, uh, before you go to Atlanta, who were you sort of, I guess, more attracted to in terms of like where hip hop was at the time? I mean, there was kind of a West Coast or whatever, but like what was hip hop in Milwaukee at the time? Well, Milwaukee was interesting because we liked all of it. So we liked world class wrecking crew from the West Coast. We liked Egyptian Lover from the West Coast, but we loved house music from neighboring Chicago. You know what I'm saying? So we were we were heavy on house music, but we loved D.C. and the go-go scene. We loved hip hop, obviously, from the whole East Coast, New York. So we liked all of it. We, and as a DJ, I played all of that. You know what I mean? So I liked all of it. Like, I think that was the unique sort of entry for me musically and my musicality was such that all of it to me was dope as opposed to just one or two groups that really sort of dictated my direction or what I thought was ill. I liked all of it. You know what I mean? It was all dope to me. So in going to Atlanta for you, like how, how do you take it from a social connection to, okay, let's, let's see if we have something here as a musician. First of all, did yeah. you break your promise to the art school? Did you finish? The I art, did. I art finished. Is, okay, good. Yeah, I finished. I finished. With a, with a 3.3, mind you, which I, oh, okay. I totally I repented. Back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I came back. I came yeah, back. You yeah. was doing something yeah. that you liked, so. Uh, yeah, well, it was funny. I was doing something that I liked, but I'll be honest. It really was my black consciousness that made me do well at school because I wanted to be excellent as a black man. Like, that was my... That was really my intention. Like, I felt like I wasn't being excellent prior and I wanted to really come with it. Like, I wanted to come with it. So I, I studied harder. I was studying the Black Panthers. I was studying groups that was about our development and, and they motivated me to do better. Like, okay, I need to do better. You know what I'm saying? So I did. I see that. Well, wait, you had a group before Lester Development. Yeah, um, I did. Uh, called Attack. Yeah. Okay. Good. So what was... Who was in attack and like what what were you guys more or less like like stylistically? What were you like? I think we were a mix between UTFO and Run DMC, if I had to say. And mm -hmm. and you know You got demos? You know I do. In fact, we got records that we released back then. And oh, uh, they're they're like classic joints that you know collectors got and uh because we only pressed two three hundred you know copies so it's nothing huge but in milwaukee that was huge because we was the first rap group to put out records and to do our thing so a lot of the fans that we had in milwaukee loved it but as i was saying we couldn't break past milwaukee so even working with Juan Ackett, so it just never happened for us but in the group was myself a brother named T.A. Wiz, rest in peace, and mm -hmm. Special K, who was now who is now named DJ Kimmet, who's a beast oh, man. as yeah. a DJ. Wait, yeah. DJ Kimmet was Kimmet. in this? Yeah. DJ Kimmet and myself and T.A. Wiz was the group attack. Wow. Uh, I never knew that. Yeah. That's my guy, man. Yeah, okay. DJ Kimmet's the dude. Yeah, oh, he wow. he crushes it to this day. And um, yeah. 
Yeah, he was he was our DJ, and I was a DJ slash rapper, and T.A. was a rapper. T.A. was murdered, unfortunately, in the early 90s. Oh, man. Were you guys opening for established acts, or, like, what were shows like in... Yeah, so, like, with Attack, one of the sort of ways that we tried to get recognized was throwing parties ourselves. So my father, being an entrepreneur, would, would spend the money and hire DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, who at that time only had a single parents don't understand or one or girls of the world are nothing but trouble, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And um, back then they didn't have covers on singles a lot of times. So I didn't know what they looked like. We hired them. And I say it in quotes because it wasn't them. I learned that later. <laughs> we hired them for like $3,000 or what have you. And um, they came and performed their one song and a few other things. It wasn't even, it wasn't Jazzy Jeff and it wasn't Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince, the guy I saw that night was like three, 400 pounds. It didn't look anything like <laughs> the Fresh Prince that we now know. And so that was our opportunity to open up for people. So we were striving to like use this entrepreneurial attitude to, to find ways Yo. to <laughs> expose ourselves. Isn't that crazy? That's wild. crazy. Yeah, was on, yeah that's crazy. For a second, I was thinking, okay, Cash Money, Marvelous were there because, all right, I'm from Philadelphia, and both groups were sort of like kind yes. of the same ilk, skilled so turntablist, humoristic so uh, humor yep. uh, MC. Oh, that's crazy. That's not the first time I heard stories of, uh, you know, grifting from the hip-hop side. I think Cat there's one shit. dude that made a killing as Redhead Kingpin. I don't know if you remember... Yeah. Oh yeah, Redhead definitely. Been in the FBI, yeah. but absolutely. Yep. Yeah, for like a good year and a half, this guy was yeah. making a killing off of you know scamming people, uh, doing nightclub uh, gigs or whatever as Redhead yeah. Kingpin. When did you realize the jig was up? For like, as far as those catfish, op- I mean, um, acts or yes, yeah, there yeah. Were so more? there were more. <laughs> When no, it wasn't any more of that particular thing, but like when DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, when I first saw them, and I forget which single it was, they the label allowed them to have a you know a a picture on the the cup. And I was like, damn, and I think it was like a a year later or so, and I'm like, wow, we got ripped off. They and the show was whack, their show was horrible, but I was like even scratch. No, not and you know, like you know. That that was a DJ Jazzy Jeff, who for me is my my favorite DJ. Right. So like, did you ever tell him that story? Actually, I haven't told him that story. Wow, no, I can't wait to call Jeff about that one. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. It's crazy. I think uh, in Seattle, well, I don't want to say like, hey, we pulled the same scan, but there was a festival called Bumper Shoot in Seattle, and the stars just weren't in line for me and Tariq to be at that show. But, you know, we were heavy believers in the show must go on. Like, we couldn't afford right. to give up one show. Right. And yeah. So, like, everyone but me and Tariq were there. And it was early enough for people to not know who the roots yeah. were. Right. But until the last minute, one guy was like, wait a minute. That drummer's skinny. No. <laughs> and then, like, it went from, like, one person <laughs> to five people. And then it was, like, damn near a riot. But they... right. Exactly. Dice Raw, Dice Raw was Black Thought, and you know they just the right. check was in the mail, and like we we just ran out of town. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tough. We we catfished the city once. Sorry, Seattle. I, uh, <laughs> I apologize for that. All right, y'all. 
You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Why did you choose the name Arrested Development when you started the group? Like, was Arrested Development the next step after... My group attack? Yeah. After you imploded or... Yeah, so basically we... You know, I left Milwaukee because I, I wanted to go to school and I wanted to get to another atmosphere, another vibe. We started off as a group called Secret Society in Atlanta. Then we had Disciples of a Lyrical Rebellion as our name. Then it was Arrested Development, and that's when we got our deal, right? So all of those names was just conceptual. If you remember that in hip-hop at the time, there was a lot of concept going on. So mm-hmm. Public Enemy, for instance, was not just a music group, but they were a concept. You got the S1Ws, you got you got Flav, exactly, Terminator X, you know, and even in other music styles, like even with Prince from the 80s on out, like he had Prince of the Revolution and the and the keyboardist was a doctor, you know what I'm saying? And it was like (laughs) in the time, you know, had had that character that they they play, you know, the whole mirror thing with Jerome. And so it's like, so the concept thing was something that was just, it was accessible. It was things that people were into. And I love the name. So I love like punk rock stuff as well at that time and dead Kennedys and stuff like this. It just had a certain ring to it. So for me, um, Arrested Development just felt right for what what we was doing and the vibe we were on. And in that moment, what was your concept for Arrested Development when you first started? It was pretty much the same as what it is now. So like, you know, our whole thing was almost like a play on um, Soul to Soul where you had Jazzy 
uh, who Jazzy B, who's right. like the DJ, mm-hmm. but then he would have guests of different types singing on it. You know, what I'm saying other, uh, exactly yeah. right. So like and even Nelly Hooper and exactly beat right. Makers and, yeah, exactly right. So that that was sort of the energy with us, but it was more of headline is the DJ. I'm the producer MC, and I would invite every show. I would invite african drummers on i would invite african dance troops to come and rock with us so painters live painters to come and rock with us on stage so that was the energy of arrested development then and you know to some extent or another now so funk jazz got it from you i would say yes yeah yeah funk jazz my man jason Orr definitely was inspired by you know what we were doing yeah okay i'd be remiss if i didn't ask this question now i mean i'm a pop culture junkie and you know one of my favorite comedies of all time also happens to share the name of your band now i knew there was a situation uh with vernon reed and the wayans family in terms of living color and in living color but actually in i believe in vernon's situation i believe living color actually maybe for the pilot took the logo of living color so i know that it got to litigious proportions but yeah i always wanted to know um when you own a name like arrested development assume that you own the name arrested development we we do yeah even if you're in and i know you guys are still active but do you have to be wholly active in order to maintain the name and does that allow you like, how does that happen when another entity comes along with your name? Like, I knew there was a situation where Prince actually owned the term the family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so when the family, the nothing that nothing compares to you, one and done group that he produced in 85. Screams imploded, Yeah. When they imploded, um, he still retained the night rights to the name the family. So when Diddy wanted to name his album, you know, uh, Puff Daddy and the Family for the yeah. No Way Out album, he actually had to break off Prince a little something yeah, just to lease the name from him. But still, Prince still maintained that name. So when Arrested Development came out, was it like, is it a separate copyright for television shows? Or when you own Arrested Development, it's for any entity that's named that. Like if I wanted cereal or... yeah a sport or just something you own it. So how does that happen? Like, are you talking to Ron Howard or like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what we, you know, how trademarks work is that if it is, if, if the consumer is going to be confused about your product called arrested development and our product arrested development, then there's a trademark issue. So if there was a restaurant called arrested development, probably no problem. Uh, if there was, you know, a corn stand called Arrested Development, probably no problem. Mm-hmm. But TV shows tend to or can, if they're successful, have soundtracks that they put out on CD or record or whatever mm-hmm. version is out at the time of, of, of music mediums. Sometimes they make movies and those movies, you know, there could be confusion as to when they put out a soundtrack and when we do. And so we... We had trademarked the name back in 92 or something. It wasn't like before we came out. We trademarked it after we came out because this was our first album. We're learning like, oh, hell, you know, we need to trademark the name. <laughs> so um, 
So we did have to take Ron Howard and Fox to court because they had stolen the name. And you mentioned a few other examples. Did they know uh, they were stealing the name? Definitely. No, they knew. They knew. Oh, y'all no, caught they, us. <laughs> they, knew, they knew, but they assumed that we were washed up, we had no money, and that we couldn't fight. And oh. so oh, it, was wrong, what? it was the wrong assumption. Yeah, they, they felt like we'll take it and just basically, you know, just steamroll them. And they tried to do that because, you know, these big corporations, they have a lot of money. They have long money so they could go into court for they could go into litigation for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go into court to fight and I had to tell the story of how we started, which some of which I shared here in front of the court to show the blood, sweat and tears of what this group meant to me. So it wasn't just a trademark to me. It was it was a thing. You know, what I mean, it was a baby in a sense. And so when the people that was in court then heard that story, uh, Fox and Ron Howard just said, okay, we need to settle. And so we settled out of court. The show was already out at the time when we went to court and we settled out of court. That's what's up. Wow. Always, always wanted to know that. Always yeah. Wanted. That was a night and you were satisfied. I'm, I'm trying not to be in your pocket, but you were heavily satisfied. <laughs> well, you know, we, we were satisfied to an extent because they offered it, you know, they could put our music on the show. You know, there was all types of things we were negotiating, but we didn't know if the show was going to go well or not. So we just decided to go, you know, with an X amount and just, just move on. And then if it went to streaming, we get another X amount. So things like that, you know what I'm saying? We went into that kind of deal. Wait, since we already did uh, a Maljam episode, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. When Malcolm Jamal Warner left the Cosby show, I believe that he did. All right, you're already agreeing with me. I knew when he did his episode, I didn't know the name of the show, and I didn't know if I imagined that Theo became a teacher of a bunch of elementary school kids. But I definitely remember, I believe that Tennessee yep. was the theme song to, you know, Malcolm Joe Warner's. But I don't know if he was Theo or if he just played a teacher. But I believe that. He, yeah, I believe he was Theo. He wasn't. He wasn't Theo, and it it was uh, his first spinoff, or not right. spinoff. It was just his first debut as the star of his own show, and they they did use Tennessee as his um, yeah. theme song. I I didn't know if I imagined that or not. Yeah, we we went to the taping of that. Yeah, they only did like nine, I think nine episodes, exactly. but exactly, it didn't last. Yeah. I forget the name of the show. Me too. My I forget. Own or you know, it's always yep. those sort exactly. of yep. <laughs> black sitcom things. Yep, facts. Here facts. we go again, starring Malcolm Jamal Warner. You know, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, in terms of uh, musicianship, or at least you as a producer, you know, is anyone teaching you production by this point? Yeah. And what were you using? What were you making tracks on at that time? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody taught me. Unfortunately, I wish I probably would have had that. Ever been dope. Uh, I was on a HR 16 Alesis drum machine and um, uh, in Sonic uh, ASR 10 or before ah, that, an Insonic yeah. uh, EPS 16. Oh, EPS, okay. um, so that was like my primary ways of like the, the whole first album, for instance, and second album was on those two instruments pretty much. Wow. Um, unless we hired somebody to come in, play horns, like on the song You to play horns or so on and so forth, you know, 
Um, yeah, pretty much my production was from that, you know, those two things. So how do the other members that we know of the group, speaking yeah. of like Dion Ferris and, and, and uh, Baba OJ? Baba OJ. We know headliner story, but well, first of all, you said it was sort of a, a community of people. Yeah. But the rest of development that we know, yeah. Um, how did you finally round up the final numbers in terms of yeah, we're a group and let's go for a, a record deal? And how do you convince the label to sign all these people? <laughs> like exactly. So that that actually you hit it on the nail because we actually already had all of these members, but when when we got signed to the deal, you can't tour with 20 members you know what i'm saying you can't it's not financially feasible right for a new group to right. go on a tour so i had to try to make the best decision as possible of who to bring out on the road and make this a sort of an official thing mm -hmm. in my mind at the time it wasn't necessarily the official group members it was just the people we could take on the road it made sense we all had different roles that we could play and this was sort of stage one, but it sort of got solidified into that because that album was so big for us that, you know, those members was those members. Now I will say Dion wasn't ever in the group as a member. She was just a guest vocalist, but how we, how me in particular and, and how we as a group rolled is we, we, we blurred the lines between who was in the group and who wasn't in the sense of all of our, you know, appearances, all of our press tours, if she was down with us, then she was down. Like, come on with us. You know what I'm saying? Just come rock with us, even though she wasn't actually in the group. Um, and that's how it sort of got confused that she was actually in the group. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Wait, sis, who 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 was the dancer? I forget her name. Eshi. Um, yeah. Eshi. Yes. Okay. So, uh, how did you meet them or incorporate them into the group? Yeah. Yeah. So Ishi was. Um, Basically, she auditioned. She was 13 years old, and wow. we auditioned her sister, who was older than her, probably about five years older than her. And her sister was going on tour for the first time in her life with James Brown, I want to say. And so she couldn't do it. And so um, she suggested her sister, her younger sister, Ishi, which her real name is Tamika. And so she suggested Tamika. She came to audition for us. I actually didn't feel Tamika. I loved her dancing, but she... She was dressed sort of like Kwame with the polka dots and that that energy. Right. It wasn't the energy that Arrested Development was on. So I I didn't totally feel her. Headliner, on the other hand, loved her style and her vibe and and felt like she could change into the more the Afrocentric vibe. And he was right. I mean, she she totally changed on her own. Like once she got in the group, she changed her whole look. She cut off her hair. She had a bald head. She was like dope as ever. And she just had this total energy that I totally miss, you know, but he saw that. Did she change her name for the group? Yeah, she did. She did. Um, you know, I, I mean, I guess how most groups do, you know, people change their name when they start to sort of go into the entertainment realm as opposed to just using like Todd Thomas, you know what I'm saying? Like I use speech. <laughs> so right. Her name was just Tamika Gaither. That's, that was her name, you know what I'm saying? So she looked up black and um and uh what's her name stamp emotional ishi so anyway it's something like black life i think it's black life and uh she looked that up and came up with the name moncho ishi see in my in my mind i thought like all right speech is the ringleader so he's like 
passing out these titles, <laughs> giving these titles to. No, 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 not at all, not at all. I only name that I gave, and it was more of just a, you know, an endear, a term of endearment was headliner because he was, you know, he was so dope as a barber mm-hmm. that um, you know, he was known for real, like in the West End. He was that guy that the line was outside of the store waiting for him to cut hair. So uh, I gave him the name Headliner, which made sense to me in a sense of, you know, somebody, you know, on the marquee being a headliner, stuff like that. Uh, in y'all's episode of Unsung, uh, you made mention of like, I, I think your original, you and Headliner's original arrangement was 90-10. It was a split. It was 90, 90 you, yeah. I guess, 10 him. Uh, what was your rationale in that, in, in terms of like division of labor and, you know, what made that a fair deal to you? For me, it was a matter of, you know, I'm producing the music. I'm the main writer of the lyrics. So, you know, just go back and listen to the record. And even unlike Rainy Revolution, right? One of the songs on the, on the debut. Mm-hmm. I would like, when the song comes on, I'm saying on the mic, yo, this is headliner from Arrested Development, and I come here tonight to give thanks to the rain. Yeah. And I'm talking, 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 and throughout the record, I'm saying things. I would often do that on records as a, what do you call it? Like a reference. A, a reference. As a reference, exactly. For him to come back and do it. Right. For him to come back and do That's it. That's right. So my point is, is that, yeah. And so, like, when those things happen, these songs were concepts that I came up with on my own. So that's why. And so managers, generally speaking, got like 10 to 15, maybe 20% max mm-hmm. in my mind at that time. And I'm not saying I was a business dude because I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was 21 years old. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> right. you're um, learning along the way. Right. I'm learning very much along the way. So in my mind, I was like, even though you didn't write these joints, I still want to give you, and that was my viewpoint. You know what I'm saying? Ah, like, so you thought you, you would, not thought, but you were giving him something for work that actually hadn't been. Facts. I mean, that's, that's, that was my view at the time. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So were these, so in terms of your deal, y'all's deal with Chrysalis, was that, yeah. who was actually signed like on paper, like to that deal? Yeah. Just me and Headliner were signed talking. to that deal. And, gotcha. and I, and I'll tell you why that happened because as I said earlier, you know, we had 20 members. So we're, it's a lot of people. And so when we got the deal, which was very unexpected, but of course we were hoping for a deal, but we got turned down by all the other labels. So when this deal finally came through, which was initially a single deal actually, that led to an album deal. um, I didn't exactly know at that time who was gonna be out on the road. Who is this group? You know what I'm saying? Cause we got 20 people who is the group like so it was tough so i knew me and headliner I, that part i knew so when it was mm-hmm. time to sign the deal i went ahead and did it that way and you know obviously then things blew up but that's that's tough because when you sign stuff you don't know how it's going to go at the time like you don't know the record's going to go you know crazy and all of that so were the members who weren't in the nucleus of arrested development did they wind up being um, you had you had an offspring group called gumbo correct yeah. Oh, I was, yeah, I was like, I know. Yeah, I'm going memory and shit. I was about to say, I thought you had something to do with Gumbo. Did the rest yeah. of the members go to Gumbo? No. So Gumbo was a whole new, like, to me, they were, they were my, like, you know, family tree, starting to develop a family tree. You know what I'm saying? Like, sort of a native tongues, if you will, you know, right. where, you know, they were going to be 
my Fuji's in a sense, but the, but the Fuji's weren't out yet. Okay. okay. How long did it take to source a record deal? Like how long was the process of making a demo Literally. to three years five months and two days <laughs> oh so that's where the title comes from literally literally wow and what songs were y'all shopping like what was on y'all's uh, demo at the time you know it changed over the over those years you know saying so when we first started shopping it was a different version of fishing for religion mm. um it might have had mr Wendell. i forget um definitely not tennessee because in fact was tennessee, tennessee last was the last song oh, yeah, that I it's always that way exactly <laughs> tennessee was the last joint man and um and it was only because i lost my grandmother who i told you i spent all my summers with mm. and then that same week uh i lost my brother terry and um so the last place i saw both of them was at her funeral in tennessee so mm. tennessee was the last joint that i wrote and it ended up being our first single our first hit too man the print sample in tennessee yeah how did y'all <laughs> how did y'all pull that off because he wouldn't let nobody sample his well, stuff no, no, no. no actually he was but i know well, he was he pricey he let because like nice and smooth used i want to be a they lover use. and hammer used prey yep oh nice and smooth no they use uh they use i want to be a lover dun, 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 sky's the limited they also use what you call it they use starfish and oh coffee. starfish and coffee too yeah i well, forgot that know, one you know prince was he was against sampling at that time you know, he didn't think it was music, you know what I'm saying? And right. And he was um, sort of offended. He he was one of those people at the time that thought it was stealing, basically. And but I will say, you know, when when we were released to stuff, the sampling world wasn't really solidified. Like the whole we were saying rumors like if you were using less than three seconds, you're you're good. If you're not using the melody, you're good. If you're just right, using right. the beat, it's fine. So these were the sort of rules that were going around it wasn't really solidified as to how that worked. And so when I sampled the word Tennessee, mm -hmm. I didn't feel like it was even a thing because I'm like, it's just a word. So it's like, if you use something from a record, like, yo, you know, or, huh, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it was mm -hmm. sort of like that to me. It wasn't a thing. You know what I mean? Um, that was how I was thinking at the time, you know? As, as much as a, a, a Prince head that I am, I will actually say it might've taken me like, four to five months for me to even realize that was a print sample. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the other thing. Alphabet Street. Alphabet, Alphabet Street. Street. We'll take so a down I'm driver to Tennessee. Tennessee. Yep. Just one word. Take on the backseat. I got to ask. I got to ask. How, 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 how much did they get y'all for? So <laughs> Prince did something really. Um, go ahead. Go ahead, bro. No, no, no. no I, 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 typical, you know, typically... Most groups will pay twenty five to fifty thousand for yeah. something, but for mm -hmm. one word, I get the feeling you're about to tell me it's it's expensive. Good, it was, and what he did, and this is pretty, this is pretty shrewd on Prince's behalf. What he did is he waited for it to to hit to the top of the charts, and so we had already uh, hit number one on the rap charts. We hit number one on the R and B charts. We got to number six, I believe, on the pop, pop charts. Right, and. The, the moment it went down to number seven, we got a call. And I'm not joking. It was literally the moment it went down. Yep. And he was like, yo, I want 100 grand for that word. And Actually, at the time, I thought that was crazy, though. I thought that was crazy, but I get that's it That's him now. being again, nice. I was young. That's him being nice, bro. And I didn't realize that. It's a hit now. Yeah. 
He he cut you a break. <laughs> he cut me a break. He cut me a break. I didn't realize because he could have pulled some sting shit and just could have. Yep. Yo, I want half the record. You know what I'm saying? Like all the publishing and all that stuff. That's crazy. Yep. In those three years and stuff, did you guys have management and whatnot? And they were helping you with things? Because I know. So how did the whole Michael Maldine? Yeah. So our man. So yeah, Jermaine's dad was our manager. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. And so, you know, back then um, we had released a record in Atlanta and pressed about 200 copies and we were, you know, passing it around to industry people. One of those people was Ian Burke, who's a very big music dude here in Atlanta. And then he passed it to Michael Malden. Michael Mm -hmm. Malden at that time wasn't really huge. He had, um, he was, I want to say he was managing or being the tour manager. Still Times Leather, which was Jermaine Dupri's first major label signing. And, uh, but they weren't huge. You know, they were just Mm -hmm. one act on a a shelf of acts. You know what I'm saying? And um, so he sent it to Michael Malden. He was sort of just like a tour manager for Brick, you know, the, the R&B band. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. And he was just wanting to break off into the industry. He got the Silk Times Leather hook up with his son, Jermaine. I knew Jermaine really well, too. So, you know, it was just a matter of, OK, well, he's bigger than anybody else that we knew. Let's go with Michael Baldwin. He was dope. And he got us the deal between him and his partner, uh, Philip Calloway. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you having any social interaction whatsoever with 
anyone in the lineage of Atlanta hip hop by the time you get down there? Like, are you, do you know members of the Dungeon family? Do you know Dre and Big Boy or the Good yeah. Mob guys? Like, are you running to anyone that's six degrees to hip hop in Atlanta by that point? Yes and no. No, none of the Dungeon family because I didn't know them. Like, they weren't a okay. thing when we were first coming out. So when we were first coming out, it was other acts, you know, MC Shy D and people like that, that was really making moves in Atlanta on the local scene. And it was more like, um, well, as you well know, it's like that sort of Miami based type of style, um, 120 beats per minute or more type of style. And uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't really where we were at, but we knew all these cats and all of the showcases that we did they were on those same showcases or people like them were on those exact same showcases. So it was very much the scene of Atlanta and we changed that, you know what I mean? Like bringing a different energy to, to the Atlanta scene. Did you think that you had to leave Atlanta in order to make it like we got to move to New York in order to get it a deal or LA or. No, we didn't feel that. In fact, I didn't go to New York until right before we got our deal. That was my first time ever being in New York period. So I felt like Atlanta had a good shot, like we had a good shot. You know, it took us some years, obviously, to make some things happen, but I felt like we had a shot and there was a scene there that was very musical, very different, you know, uh, than what was going on in New York at the time. Uh, were there any other labels that were considering you guys before you? No. I mean, we, we tried all the labels, but at that time we were just getting turned down left and right, left and right, left and right. And this is prior to like, you know, Obviously, Black Eyed Peas or PM Dawn or any of those things. Well, PM mm -hmm. Dawn actually did put out a record. It just wasn't it wasn't huge right. just yet. But um, yeah, so it was it was tough for them to imagine. You know what I'm saying? You know, because the thing is, is that at least now that I look in sort of an aerial view of it, for me, the beginning of what they call the alternative movement of hip hop starts with the Jungle Brothers. And well, you guys are technically the penultimate. I will say that it ended in my eyes with Diggable Planets. Really before before the I guess you could say the eclipse of what we call the chronic came. Right. And get it out of shit. Yeah, part yeah, part <laughs> part of my dist not at the time, and you know, I I've said this to Dre millions of times that it took me really 15 years to really open up and admit that okay, I like the chronic. But I hated right. the chronic when it first came out. Yeah. Really, because I saw, you know, the night that you guys won your Grammy was like right when Tariq and I were starting uh, the roots. And I was like, OK, now, you know, this is the first step into alternative hip hop, getting, you know, a seat at the table. So by the time we get our thing together, it's going to be on and popping. And then. At, you know, and then and then Diggable Planets was next. So I was like, all right, great. First the rest of plan, uh, development, then Diggable Planets, then the roots the next. You watch. And then we get right. our we get to the train platform and the doors closed. And then yeah, yeah. we had to wait until time. like the late 90s in order to get the second wave in. But yeah. you know, in your mind, how did you feel about the alternative hip hop tag? Because you know, what what I will say is that. I mean, people that listen to the show know kind of my obsession with sort of like uh, journalism, music journalism in particular. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the most impossible 
like Steph Curry from half shot, eyes closed, opposite yeah. direction, yep. shot going in moments in hip hop history to me was you guys winning uh, the coveted Paz and Jop Awards yeah. of, of 92, which, you know, I don't know if you were aware of it at the time, but uh, for, for those of you who don't know, you know, I'll say that Lester Bangs was the first like rock journalist that was like a star, you know, like a journalist that was bigger than he was a part of the story. Yeah. Saw himself as, you know, which is kind of a dangerous thing. And then after the age of Lester Bangs, then a gentleman named uh, Robert Christigal, who started working at the Village Voice, of which, you know, that's where like Greg Tate and yeah. all these other like black writers are coming up. Dream Hampton, like basically the first wave of what will run like the source and vibe in the 90s. But, you know, in 86, 87, 88, what's happening is, is Robert Christigal is letting like a lot of black writers get a seat at the table to start reviewing hip hop. And this is the first time that I'm re- reading reviews sort of set in the, the native tongue of like a black person, you yeah. know? And so when I saw y'all win the Paz Jop Awards, and the Paz Jop Awards, basically, uh, Chris Degau gathers like 300 journalists across the United States. And he asked them for their top 10 singles and records of the year. And it varies. Yeah. So to get like the last time I seen a, a hip hop album win that award was a uh, nation of millions yeah. before that a hip hop album hadn't won. So when you guys won that, yeah, I was like, yo, this is a fucking moment at the time when you won that, the, the past job awards did that mean anything to you? Or was it just like, Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even know anything about it. In fact, I didn't know anything about it until you just said it now. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Wait I know nothing about it. Nah, <laughs> nothing about it. Bro. You mean I'm telling I'm you? Like, I'm telling you. Why not? <laughs> wait, time out. You mean I'm telling you right now that like right now you won like three Michelin stars for your restaurant and you had no clue? No clue. That you got like no five clue. mics in the source and you had no no clue. I remember, I remember the past job, but like I didn't care what the white people thought. Like, what was the source saying? But no, 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 it wasn't that. I know, I know that that's that's a very easy deflection, Fonte. But what I'm saying was, Krista Gal made it in a very even seat at the table. So this is a mixture of black critics okay, and white gotcha. critics. Uh, so gotcha. that shit meant a lot more to me than. P-A-Z-B well, and Jop and Paz. Yeah, instead and of jazz pop. and pop, they spell it Paz, Paz and Jop. Word up. Yeah. Right. Word up. No, and I wasn't saying that it wasn't, you know, that it wasn't important. I just meant from the standpoint for us, for me, that's as a hip hop fan. Right. We wasn't really checking for what their opinion was on hip hop. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, you know, that was kind of what it was. I was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that was like, some amazing like i i don't know like yeah often hard to achieve and you guys did it but the fact that you didn't even know about it was even more crazier than me well you know also i hated the term alternative hip-hop because i didn't for me personally i didn't get it it didn't feel like it was an alternative or an alternative to the other hip-hop like i'm i'm listening to like yo bum rush's show album Mm -hmm. and they're sophisticated you know, which is a rock song. And then there's all these live drum loops and stuff like this on Yo Bum Rush the Show record coming from mm-hmm. Def Jam, which was a, obviously a very legitimized label in hip hop. 
and it wasn't called an alternative record. Chuck D sounded 100% different than any MC, in my opinion, at least, any MC prior to him. Mm-hmm. And it totally, you know, Flav, the, the concept of a Flav, a Flav and, and everything he did, and same with Nation of Millions to hold us back record. Don't get me wrong, it was clearly, we all celebrated that music, but I'm saying mm-hmm. like, to me, if, you know, too much posse and, and these type songs aren't gonna be considered alternative hip hop, then I, I I didn't get it. I didn't get what made it so alternative or or why it started with us. You know what something though? If if I'm really, really truly honest, I was 21 when the album came out. And I didn't buy the album until Mr. Wendell started until after Unplugged. Okay. Then I brought the record. Gotcha. I spun, I'm a DJ, so I had when I buy singles and 45s, it's for the purpose of like playing in Definitely. the club. Definitely. So here's the thing though. When I hear Tennessee and uh, essentially people every day, I remember having a, a little hip hop debate arguments about is Arrested Development a hip hop group or an R&B group? That's fucked up. Wow. He rapping. I was 21, dog. But even then... Because he was singing, because he was, he was delivering yeah. so melodically, ah. I just, in my mind, rap was Chuck, one, two, one, two. Yo, the mic's on. Yeah. <laughs> one, two, one, two. And I didn't see that. So in my mind, I was like, yo, this is one of the most innovative R&B groups ever. <laughs> <laughs> no. An, yeah. Hey, another disclosure. One of my first debates with Missy Elliott was over the same thing because I made the mistake of letting my opinion known on Twitter that I didn't consider Missy Elliott an MC more than I considered her a singer. That's I consider her a singer that had skills as an MC. Ooh. And word, she lit wow. my DMs up, boy. Wow. The lyrics to the second verse, or I guess the first verse of People Every Day, how much resistance were you on a daily basis meeting from the hip-hop guard that saw you guys as weirdos ironically we weren't getting like from a in my own body experience we weren't getting a lot of um people doubting the hip-hop origin of who we were Mm -hmm. being in my own body we were getting a lot of pushback from gangster hip-hop at the time i mentioned ice cube on people every day and Mm. early to read from our group says who after I say his name. So there's like a, now I meant for it to be a slight in a sense, right? Cause I'm trying to compare how I'm going to handle this situation compared to how Ice Cube portrayed himself. Oh, exactly. Right. Wait a minute. Now I'm just hearing Now I'm one second years old. I didn't realize the who. Yep. I didn't realize it was a question. I just thought, And we all we all knew who Ice Cube was. Don't get me wrong. Right. She was, but but at the time he I'll took be that honest, some way. He did, and so did therefore Snoop, and so did you know others who were on the West Coast that were more so repping gangster hip hop in a more direct way, right? So there was that sort of, and not to mention every show that I did, and I'm talking about for twenty thousand people, or Arrested Development did. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I would say that 
we're not calling black women bitches and hoes. We don't do that. Our peers do that. We don't do that. So I'm making a very clear statement about who we are, what we're doing, right. and why it's different than what this dude's doing. So those types of things came off as basically, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, you, you're, you're, you're down. You, know, you think you're better than the, yeah. <laughs> what happens the first time that you meet them? He was better. Cube, Cube did that signature growl look that he does you know how he just it's it's a cover of every magazine you've ever seen cube grace the cover of he gave me that <laughs> cube scowl 101 he gave me that scowl right and then snoop gave me this sort of like cold thing at the grammys and it was that kind of energy ice t at the time me and him prior to us really blowing up were friends mm. but after we started to blow up he distanced himself from me so it's those kind of things that I felt, but it wasn't necessarily the whole R&B versus hip hop thing. It was more of the the stance that we were taking. And I think now, mind you, we're eating. We're eating at this time. Like we're wrapping up award shows. So this is this is scary. Oh, you're I, also winning. Yes, you're, yeah. So this I, is this is like competition now. Like, OK, their stance is very juxtaposed to what we're doing and they're winning. Like, this is not an underground sensation. This is something that's actually taking awards from them, like the does, chronic and so on and so forth. Become, because, because of the, the, yeah, I mean, you guys owned, you guys owned 92. Did it ever become a burden uh, winning that much and Definitely. selling that much? Because Definitely. then again, it's also like, I, and I do remember, like, Cy Cypress Hill went through a situation where, you know, the source decided to, just start going out on them for their second album yeah. because they thought like, Oh, y'all ain't making hip hop for the heads no more. Like we see, you know, white people dancing and slam dancing in your videos and you're doing like Lollapalooza and all this other stuff. Yeah. So were you feeling as though that you were in danger of hindering the group? Without a question. Like for me as a leader of the group, I'm worried about that every day. Like every day I'm worried about this, this transference of black heads and fans loving our music and it started to transform into mainly white audiences now loving the music, mainly white critics, uh, you know, heralding the music. It was like, oh man, what is this? What does this mean? Like, because everything we're talking about is these black issues, but then the people that's starting to, you know, come to all the shows is 100% right. different. Yeah. We did Lollapalooza, you know what I'm saying? We we did these huge which I love these festivals, don't get me right. wrong, like I'm with bands that I absolutely adore, Primus and Fishbone and you know, I love these bands. So I'm loving this experience, but it's a it's a it's a hard thing to sort of reckon, right? Because you're this to wrap your head truthfully, around we're we're an underground hip hop group talking about black liberation. And yet we're doing these big rock tours and we're doing things that I wouldn't take back to this day, but it was tough, right? To try to understand the trajectory, you know, like, what, so, what's going on. Carol Lewis, of course, gets immortalized and paid in full. You know, Norbury Walker's our agent. Carol Lewis is our agent. Yeah. Word up, indeed, whatever. And so I remember the reason why my manager chose Carol Lewis is because you guys were a client yep. and always working. And yep. he saw the, the the basic route that you took, you know, yep. the festivals you were doing. Yep. And again, this was 
unheard of at the time in the early 90s. We live now in a America just got on to festival fever, but right. right. And so, but one of the most shocking things was you guys wanting to do uh, a Chitlin circuit kind of, you basically wanted to un, yeah. It seemed like you wanted to undo the progress of, of the first album um, with Zingalama Dooney because I remember this whole campaign of, you know, we're going to do a Chitlin circuit tour. We're going to do like small clubs and that sort of Max. thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, y'all sold 4 million. Yeah. Like I've seen you guys open for in Vogue in the summer. Like now it's yep. your turn. Really? I, I was just mad. Cause I wanted you guys in, in the shed. So that way the roots get open for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking like, wait, why are y'all in the these small venues where you're not going to make money? Like, go back to the big venues. But, you know, why? What was your mind, the mind state of doing what you call the Chitlin Circuit Run for, you know, the the um, the launch of Zingalama Dooney? I felt like we had lost track with the roots. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I felt like like we weren't connected with the people and the machine had gotten so it became so much a part of everything that I, I felt scared to be honest. And I felt like I was floating and my feet weren't on the ground. Like I, I didn't know what I was connected to. And so we went that direction. It, to me, it reminded me of what De La did after their success with three feet. Right. So yeah. De La, their next record was De La's dead. Right. So right. to me, I don't know. I, I, I know them, but I've never talked to them about this, but I, I have a feeling that it was their way of saying, okay, let's get back to something that has more, I don't know, roots or something than the whole hippie thing. Like we could take that and we could keep going with the hippie thing. But I think that they purposely wanted to kill that and go, you know, to something that they, that, that felt more real to them. Yeah, I'll say, man, I was surprised. You know, I was very surprised. I thought Ease My Mind was going to be, like, out of here. I thought that would be, like, a big... Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I was like, okay, this is them. It sounded like y'all. I'm like, okay, this is this is them, but, you know... That was my jam. Yeah, yeah that joint, you know, like, what was the relationship with the label like at the time when y'all were making that Well, record? so it was a perfect storm because the label was going through huge changes so that we just made them, I don't even know how many millions, right? <laughs> right. And... What tends to happen with these big labels is then their presidents start getting changed and people start getting changed and, and you, you know they start to, that brought you in the building. Facts. You start yeah. losing your, your team and the people that you're working with. Simultaneously, the group is going through it. So internally, me and Headliner are going at war with each other behind the scenes and we're going through everything. You know what I mean? And that that was demoralizing and, and horrible. And the music industry was changing, you know, saying Wu was coming in. It was a different energy from what was happening in the early 90s. And well, it still was the early 90s, but like 90, 91, 92 had a different energy than what would start to happen with Wu becoming more and more popular. Nas's Illmatic was out. So it was like, it's just all of those things combined made it a little bit of a different landscape. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? That that um, landscape internally, group wise, musically on the outside. And label wise. So with the remix for people every day, did, wait, did you make both at the same time or was it after the fact, after the album was done? 
after the album was done. And in fact, when Tennessee blew up, which again was the last song we did on the album, right? Right. So, and so if you could imagine the whole hip hop argument versus melodic singing argument, there was not really a melodic singing record on the rec on our album, except for there was two songs, uh, a song called You and a song called Rainy Revolution. Mm -hmm. But none of those were planning to be singles for us. So um, by the time we released Tennessee as our first single, Unexpected But Last Minute Move, it was a melodic style. It did so well that I didn't feel confident. I wanted to make a run of this, you know what I'm saying? Because I wanted this to work. So I, I didn't feel confident that the version of People Every Day that was on the record was going to do it. But the label wanted to release that as a single, People Every Day. The version that's on the record. That's not the version that that's became the, the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. So I was like, yo, I'm doing the singing style on Tennessee. Let me try to basically recreate that same song, different groove and different melodic style. So I re-sang it, went into the studio, brought the rest of the group in. We did that. We did that version. I felt like that was the right call. And it was definitely it, the right call. Yeah, it took <laughs> off. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Basically, you know, between Tennessee and uh, uh, People Every Day and Mr. Wendell and Natural, you know, I never have that much faith in record companies for like having a plan and successfully executing that plan. Facts. Me either. <laughs> so 
who's the person that's going to claim the credit of it was my mastermind thing? Because, you know, <laughs> not for nothing, but we followed. We saw that blueprint and was like, oh, this is obviously a blueprint for success. Yeah. Like, will the label claim that, oh, we we had a plan all along. We knew this is going to happen. Like, yeah, who do I you would credit? say I, w- I would credit a, a team and it was Michael Malden. It was myself and it was Lindsay Williams. Those are the people. Lindsay Williams was our A&R guy at Chrysalis. He also signed um, Gangstar mm-hmm. and released um, Step in the Arena album and stuff after that. So mm-hmm. um, Lin- Lindsay knew hip hop. He was from Har- he is from Harlem. Michael Malden knew us. He understood our vibe and I knew us. So I feel mm-hmm. like uh, between us, we were sort of coming up with what should be this? How should we navigate that? And the label just really follows suit. I'll, I'll never forget being a 22, I think I was 22 year old dude going for the first time up to these tall high rises on, on um, Avenue of the Americas, New York, and having these meetings with these, all these execs at this long table trying to explain to them why and how Arrested uh, Development can make it. You know what I mean? And having marketing meetings, like talking about marketing strategies. So it's just it's usually tough and it was. It's crazy. Usually, like record labels, usually stories like yours, um, in which other groups, I mean, for every verse of development, I can name other alternative hip hop groups that, you know, it could be the Boogie Monsters, it could be Me Five Me, it could be <laughs> right. shit, the roots for the first three or four records. We got another word the label, for that alternative, but mm-hmm. well, no, no, I'm just saying which the label just doesn't have a clue on how to to market. And let's be honest, a lot that was selling was also due to the momentum of a controversy. You know, if someone gets shot, if someone goes to jail, if someone has a backstory, then that's easy marketing. But that's not on the label's part. They're just exploiting that. And always just, you know, the stars was was aligning for this. Um, You got to talk about uh, working with... uh, in the Malcolm X, I can only imagine. Like I was really excited seeing Revolution for the the end of it. I I have to know though when Spike's approaching you about this in your mind, especially in 1992, are you seeing having the the flagship song for a Spike Lee film? Is it pressure? Because I mean, we pretty much are thinking like, oh, you got to come with someone on the level of Fight the Power or something like of that level or debut, you know, like there was one point where a song associated with the Spike Lee film could yeah. Yeah. elevate. Sh- so like, what, what is that like? Like, how did that all come about? It was, it was incredibly stressful because public enemy smashed it right. with fight the power and the way spike positioned fight the power throughout the film mm-hmm. made it such a pivotal part of that film i mean it's an undeniable part of that film right you know it's part of the fabric of the film not just the soundtrack you know what i'm saying so coming in after that was extremely tough and um yeah i felt a lot of pressure you know what i mean okay. to like to, to try to make sure that it was look i mean bomb squad is a whole crew you know what i'm saying but <laughs> for me as a producer Still with that ASR ten, you know what I'm saying? Right. And, and HR sixteen. Wow. Alesis, yeah. That, I'm I'm striving to make sure that it that it has the layers and that it has the potency of 
of something that deserves to be in this film, but also making sure that it's still us and not somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Making sure it's still who we are as a group and what we do. Knowing how tenacious Spike is, you know, even for like, a, we did a, a song for Bamboos or whatever. So I, I know how Spike is in terms of him putting the pressure on you. Facts. How many times did he have to come to you to be like, because even Chuck will say, I think I think Keith Shockley told me that Spike didn't like the first three drafts of Fight the Power. Yeah. And the fourth time they finally nailed it. Yeah. You know, because I was asking Keith, like, why name something Fight the Power and not have, like, the Isley Brothers or a reference of that? And he talked about, like, we did a whole nother thing and then Spike was like, nah, this ain't it, this ain't it, or whatever. Right. And I often know that sometimes it's hard to take criticism from a non-musician. Yeah. Ah, they just don't know or whatever. And, you know, you guys have like four top 10 singles at the time. So it was like, yeah. you could have easily been in Can't Tell Me Nuttonville. Yeah. So like how much back and forth was it until he was like, that's it. That's the one. You know, it's funny. We didn't get a lot of back and forth from Spike on that. And okay. he was very hands-on though. So he was in the studio when we recorded that. He was shouting revolution. He insisted that it be an anthem right from the jump. And so he really trusted in me to, to deliver. And and he didn't give me any, the only, only fighting back that he gave me was the video. Cause I wanted to have a more militant video. Did he shoot have, it? Yes, he shot it. He shot okay. it in Brooklyn. We shot it in Brooklyn with him. It was amazing experience. We shot that entire video in seven hours. And if you look at that video again, you'll see probably two, three, four, five hundred people. I'm not sure. Marching down the street with us in one scene, another two, maybe one or two hundred people in a classroom with us in a school. I mean, there's a lot of sets and we did all of that in seven hours. Just amazing. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely his hands-on experience all over it, but he didn't mm -hmm. give me a lot of fight back. And prior to us, Gangstar had did, um, it's a jazz thing for Mo, Mo Better Blues. Mo Better, right. And that that took a little bit of the pressure off, but for me personally, uh, as big as the group our group was, I was really wanting to, you know, go somewhere near that fight the power energy. Okay. All right. I got to ask the question. So again, longtime listeners know of my journalism obsession. So without really getting into the specifics of it, I kind of want to ask you about the aftermath of it. And we actually did an entire episode with Daniel Smith, writer. And at the time I was living in London and there weren't American publications. Uh, they, you know, it was hard to get you know, now like everything's digitally colonized. So I can get the same magazines that you're getting all, all across the world. So, you know, I'm getting care packages from my publicist in the States to London. And of course, you know, the Prince issue of vibe magazine comes out and, you know, I had never experienced a black takedown article before. And I internalized, like, I almost felt like that was my group she was talking about. I think maybe these questions I'm asking you simply because, like, vicariously, I was living in your footsteps and whatnot. And, okay, yeah. what they do, oh, that's what I'm doing. And, 
they, yeah. they do that students that stuff and that so you know i get the magazine i read the prince article and everything i was like all right read the the rest of the development article and trouble in paradise was the i was like yo like you know i'm i'm used to in black journalism i'm used to like write on magazine you know what Facts. i mean Facts. like hey uh what opposites do you find attractive in the opposite sex and yeah. Facts. what kind of foods do you like so this level of journalism i'd never seen before yeah i've never seen a takedown and for those of you who don't know a takedown article is kind of where i believe the artist doesn't realize that they're being ambushed facts in the interview can you walk me through the process from which you found out that this article was not going to be the glowing a plus report card that Arrested Development had been getting up until that point. Yeah, like, bro, what, can you just walk me through it? Like, it was it was literally a kick in the ass because mm. I was cool with Danielle. Like, she came she, to Atlanta she, and she said this. We we hung out with Danielle. And it was all love. Like, it was so much love, and we needed that article. Because we right. had already been facing backlash. We had already been getting a lot of different narratives about where we're going, who we are. Not not from a like internal group, like any beefs going on in the group, but just from a standpoint of what I was saying earlier, as far as, you know, now we're sort of these pop music darlings, which we never were on that tip. But that's what we had sort of become to some extent. We're winning all these awards. We're going these, right. these big Lollapalooza rock tours and all of this. So... That article was dear to me, and it for me, it was a sister, a black sister that's come down to Atlanta to hang with us. So she had total access to everybody, and long story short, unknown that, to me. Oh, was that always the protocol? Like, because even now, like me and Tariq do the Roots interviews. There's eleven of us, but right, uh, it's Mick and Keith. Like, right, you you felt comfortable and just letting, hey, talk to everybody. I did. I did. And so you didn't know it was coming. Not at all. Like that was 100 percent one of those like, damn, when I read it is when I knew that that's what the take was, because that's not what I was getting from Danielle in person, like eye to eye. Right. And with the other members with me, too, by the way. So like we're with her and I'm not getting that. Now, mind she, she talks to everybody separately as well. And you know, this article starts to listen, there was there was uh, turmoil in the group. I'm not denying that. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the narrative of where we even were at as a group. So we were going through turmoil, but we were marching on like that's where we're at. Right. We're going through y'all going through turmoil, but y'all weren't trying to sell it. We were definitely not trying to sell it. And also we weren't it wasn't the major narrative of where we were at as a group. It was a narrative, it was a narrative, but it wasn't the narrative. So when I saw that article and it was the narrative of the entire article, I was like, it lo it lo I lost my faith in journalism from that point forward. Cause I was like, damn, like that was, like you said, it was a takedown. And I don't know what she said. I don't even know if y'all addressed this when you interviewed her, but I, it either had to been some type of Thing where you know it's it, it was a good look for her to 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 do some kind of story or it's maybe her boss or uppers was like yo come at it this way or whatever i don't know what it was but it was it was crazy you know what 
I don't want to put words in Dan Danielle's mouth, but I definitely I don't I can't even write. Yeah, it, was right. so yeah, it, was, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a yeah, I did it. And so what? Like it was definitely a remorseful, like sort of afterthought. And she explained, like, you you have to understand that I wasn't coming mean spirited. I believe that there was a pressure to not make, and again, you know, as I explained earlier, black journalism before the source, before Vibe magazine was basically just limited to either Ebony magazine where everything was glowing yeah, or ride on magazine where everything was kind of frothy. You know yeah. what I mean? Facts, but not like real journalism. Yeah. And so I remember her feeling like, I, I, I believe she said that it was a very conflicting thing to do. Like as a, as a journalist, do I tell the truth or do we protect because you know also i know the rules of black people is that you don't spill your dirty laundry in front of the world to see and me reading that article made me uber obsessive in terms of who we talk to like yeah, that was the point facts. that was the point in which i started you know studying every journalist every byline facts. looked at other articles they wrote yeah. Even to this day, I mean, I'm not as vigilant now as I was. Yeah. But yeah, it just, for me, I was just like, yo, like this group is, might, might never recover from this. How, we didn't. How we did didn't. you, so mentally and physically to go that high and then to be in a car crash that yeah. wasn't by your intentional design? Exactly. But still a car crash, nevertheless. How did you guys continue with promoting the album? Or like, was it a rap after that? It was a rap after that. I mean, by and large. And so for me, I'm I'm literally pissed at her. Like, dude, I saw her at I saw her at events and I literally, you know, saying <laughs> I won't go there. And I, I was pissed. And I, I didn't talk to her at all. I, I just I was literally bitter towards her. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it was the first time I, I saw sensationalistic journalism for me. Uh, it was my first introduction to it. So like you said, articles prior were one thing and, and, and different magazines covered things in, in one way. But after I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. Because it's one thing to say the truth about there's some beef going on behind the scenes. I'm, I'm, to me, I, I think I was cool with that. Like I was all right with that. And that's why I was allowing everybody to speak. But to make that the whole trajectory of the story, it damaged us. And Vibe was very much a huge deal at the time. And from a black perspective, we needed that, that cosign at the time. Like right. we needed that from a marketing standpoint mm -hmm. for this group, we needed that love in order to you know, validate the direction we're we're continuing to go in, and with without it, it was tough. It was real. So no, tough. no circle back for you and Danielle. I mean, at this age, I'm now fifty four. Yeah, I can circle back <laughs> with her, but but I'll be honest. Like during that time period, probably for probably ten years, probably I couldn't talk to her. Those are our petty years too. Yeah, it's the height. Yeah, you know what I mean. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. You talked about around like uh, ninety six, like when you did your solo record. And, um, you know, you were 
you know, you were feeling suicidal at the time. What yeah. took you to that mind state? I think it was what you just talked about, Quest, was like it was the drop and how far it was. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that that's tough to digest right. for any person, in my opinion. Yeah, I do. I was gonna say we that's you're literally the first person to call me to do something. So I forgot, like you did a solo my first, project. It was my first music video. I was in your I, video, you yep. fully me, myself. Uh, me, you, Foley, Dallas, Austin. That's right. He was playing keyboards, right? Yep. He was playing organ on that. And joint. Ramon Harvey was your manager. I remember you and Ramon, Ramon picking me up. Yep. You and Ramon picking me up from the the hotel. Exactly. Yeah. We had him on here too, speak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, I was a fan of y'all's already. Like before I met you, the label showed me y'all's album and was like, "Yo, peep this out." So I was a fan already. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, the label that it was no longer chrysalis it was called emi and it was sort of morphine and d'angelo was signed as well but he wasn't Mm -hmm. out yet so i was hearing a lot of the stuff that they was about to go into the direction of and that's how i knew about y'all so i was like yo i love this group and so that's why i you know reached out to you for y'all when you were talking about you know being in that like kind of deep uh depressive period uh what got you out of it how did you get through it you know it was through time but also spirituality in 96, I released my solo album in 96. I was very suicidal. And a woman that I auditioned for a tour I was doing in Amsterdam was a Christian. Okay. And she started talking to me and my wife. And long story short, I became a Christian. And that truly saved my life. It truly made me think of things differently and see myself as valuable outside of wherever a record was at and where you know whatever the, says or whatever whatever the industry yeah. was saying and, and my music career was going it so I, I saw a value outside of that and that, that changed my 96 was also around the time i used to see you on campus so you were going through all kinds of enlightening facts and that that was i went back to school at clark um i never went to clark prior but i went to school in general back to college to really like to I wanted to be around academia in a sense, and I wanted to be around that sense of learning and curiosity and, and things that I felt was more pure in life. Wait, you two went to Clark at the same time? Mm-hmm. He went to Clark as speech, Amir. Very brave. <laughs> what was that like? I dream of going back to college, but time won't allow that. So what is that like? Like, not starting over again, but just... Yeah, it was tough because we had already blown up. This is prior to Zingala Maduni, but it was after three years album. So we're huge. I'm very noticeable, very known. And so it was tough and our schedule was absolutely insane. So honestly, I could only stay for a semester. I had to drop back out because it just was, it wasn't doable for any long term, unless I would have quit the industry, which I wasn't willing to do at that, at that point. So yeah, you were still actively releasing music and you guys were, you know, still there, there's a momentum and outside of the United States. Facts, you know, very much term. so. Yeah, Mace did the same thing, though. I don't know what it is about Clark, but Mace went to Clark after he was Mace too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, preacher Mace. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think his ministry was in the was in, was on Clark initially. Yeah, thirty years into this business, can you tell me like what what have you learned? What have you like? What your overall experience is in terms of what you learned? things that you could have changed or experiences that you've had. I didn't even ask about like, what does success feel like in 1992, 93? 
amongst the people you meet? Like, did you even have a an inner circle? Like, did you become friends with other artists or not? Or um, so to answer that last part, yes and no. I mean, I I was cool with you know certain artists, but not really friends, friends because everybody was on the East Coast or West Coast and we was down in Atlanta and it just was a different energy. You know, back then hip hop was still very divided. You know, it was West Coast, East Coast. The South was still not thoroughly respected. If you remember Andre's speech at the awards, it's like, I'm say, yeah. and, and that was that was after us. So imagine prior to that, how little respect, you know, the South got in many ways. So, so to answer the question, no, I, I don't think so. And also, I'm a very like everyday people kind of guy. So by nature, I I didn't find super value in hanging with like clicks in the industry type thing. Like that wasn't my thing. So if we if we clicked, it was good. But it, that just not that that wasn't what I was searching for in a sense. I was so you weren't searching. going like making pilgrimage to New York to go record shopping with blah 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 no, or no. no hey, when you that. come to Atlanta, come hang with us and yeah, I would start doing that later, like much later. But no, I wouldn't. I wasn't doing that at the time. Does the Atlanta hip hop community look to you to know that you kind of like kind of started this ball rolling in a way? Like, do you feel the respect from Atlanta in that way? Yes and no. Yes, when they meet me in person. No, when it comes to documenting. It. <laughs> like, whenever there's a documentary about Atlanta, somehow we're sort of left out of it, and it starts wow. with organized noise, and it starts with Outkast and Goody Mob. It's let, a funny let me thing. Go on, let me go on record to give you the flowers and and basically says that yeah you know and we really haven't run into each other all that much because this you would know, have for, been in person by the way in atlanta if speech was in atlanta when we was in atlanta oh he's facts. part of the atlanta run yeah he was gonna uh, be yeah, part of the atlanta be. run yeah uh, that was yeah okay facts facts yeah i see i see i'm sorry right. that means it's interrupted wisdom no god go ahead no 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 but i'm i'm just saying that yeah no i i I do acknowledge that you guys, you know, planted a seed. And oftentimes, yeah, history doesn't remember pioneers, like often people that come after the fact and sort of perfect a, a formula, that sort of yep. thing. They get the it's flowers true. and they get the accolades. And, you know, you guys definitely, whether people really want to admit it or not, like, you know, you guys are responsible for a movement. You're definitely responsible for the movement that I'm still allowed to participate you know, 30 years later into to my life. So I definitely, uh, I, I thank you for that, man. Oh, but, you know. That means everything. It really does. It means a lot. And didn't you just do a show with Christian and Tariq? Yeah, I did a show in New Jersey at the PAC Center um, with Black Thought, with um, uh, Yassin, with Christian. Yassin showed up. Yeah, did he show up on time? He did. He actually was on time. He was before time, actually. And he rocked. He did his thing. Yeah. Rakim was supposed to be on it and he broke right. his foot, our ankle, and then um Chuck D was supposed to be on it. He got COVID. So right. Damn. But you killed it. So have you had any communication whatsoever with the, the initial original members of the band? What's the Definitely. relationship like now? It's dope. It's dope. Okay. Um it's never gonna be like it was in the early days, but we're like mad cordial with one another, mad you know, when we see each other, it's literally like seeing an old best friend, right? So, and in particular, me and Headliner, because that's where the main split was, you know what I mean? And the group sort of split on one side or the other according to that main split, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, Headliner and I, were cool, you know what I mean? We, the, the issues are what it was, and I don't think it will ever not be there, but we're real cool. And 
you know, like if he, if he has issues with his family, I'm the first to call him and try to see what I could do. You know what I'm saying? And, and to help and vice versa. So there's, there's a lot of love there. And I think as the older we've gotten, the more we're able to um, dead the stuff that, you know, is sort of irrelevant in the gist of time, you know, as time moves on. Well, not to hint too much, but, you know, it is kind of the 30th anniversary Facts. of that movement. So mm-hmm. if yep. there ever was a time to sort of rekindle or re-spark a flame, whatever, like, you know, just having participated in an event in which we're celebrating our history. And I know I know hip hop has a lot of disdain for being seen as old or ancient or sages or whatever, you know, the non-sexy term is for for having age of wisdom. But I've learned probably after the Grammy experience how important it is to acknowledge and celebrate a history. And I agree. I totally you agree. guys have that. So I, you know, I really hope that one day I I see it all come back full circle because, you know, the world needs that because I still I still spin the music and the magic, you know, it it, it the magic still works. You know, so there's just like a 70 percent possibility or 60 uh, <laughs> percent. What are we thinking? What are we thinking? No, I mean, it's it's way he's gotten way better than that now. We, we worked all of that out now. Also, it can really. Oh, make it oh. happen. Oh, oh yeah. and last question. This is such a random question, but you talked about land and stuff in Georgia earlier. And I was just curious if you're linked in with those families that bought that 97 acres in Georgia. No, but I, I that that movement huh? has been something that's important for Child, a while. Wait, 19? what is that? 19 black families bought 97 acres for a safe space for black people. They're building a community. So yeah. I was just, it seems so in speeches like Lane. And it doesn't have anything to do with Dr. York? No, no, no. <laughs> what? No. And it's dope houses too. Dope. They, they, they're they building nice. really well. I'll send you the article, Amir. Yeah. Yeah. I want to see about that. Well, speech, brother. Brother, thank you. Thank you for, for taking the time out to, to speak with us. And uh, thank you. Um, you know, again, you're a legend, and I thank you, thank you, thank you so much for for doing this with us. Um, this is QLS, y'all. Another classic episode. Uh, speech, our guest on the show, Sugar Steve. Thank you, Speech. Man, yeah. thank y'all. Thank you, Fontigolo. Yes, sir. And uh, Laia. I'll send you the article, Amir. Yeah. Uh, of course, <laughs> on, on behalf. <laughs> I know. Once I hang up, I'm. I know it's like a question I forgot to ask. But, I know you. Uh, just, I see you going slow, well, trying to figure out. My last question. I oh yes, hit me. <laughs> Can we wear Game of Horseshoes? (laughs) 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 Perfect ending. Perfect ending. What's Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.